Let's go to our uh, scripture reading for this morning. We're looking at Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> Let's give our attentive listening to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for gathering all of us here uh, as your creatures um, being drawn back to the Creator. And we thank you that you're not only a God who creates, but also a God who redeems, saves his uh, creation when they go astray. And Lord, we, we come to you as uh, such creation. Um, we have gone astray. Uh, we were prone to wander. Uh, but we thank you that we're here. We thank you that we're here to receive your word. The, the main way in which you draw your sheep to yourself by, by allowing them to hear your voice. So Lord, uh, have that effect on, on all of our hearts. Uh, and Lord, as, as your sheep hear your voice, may we follow uh, the shepherd. Uh, may this change our lives, change our hearts. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking back up on our series in the book of Revelation. And here's uh, what we have been seeing in chapters 6 and 7. We saw the Lamb of God, uh, which is Christ, the one who is worthy to be seated on the throne and open the scroll. And he begins to open the first uh, six seals. And that symbolizes his right to bring his righteous judgment, the, the arbitration of all things here on the earth. So according to the Bible, uh, morality, moral values are not uh, human inventions. They're not made up. They're real because they're rooted in God. Um, it either speaks to our conformity or deformity in relation to God's own moral nature. He is the absolute reference point, and, and therefore, because he's the reference point, it's right for him to bring about his moral judgment to everyone everywhere. Um, everything we do, our every word, thought, and deed, they must be taken into account because it's rooted in God's cosmic reality, authority. We can't simply wish moral accountability away because it's not rooted in us. It's rooted in God and his nature. And we've been shown through the, the previous seals and what they symbolize at least metaphorically, just how terrifying uh, that is, God's moral accounting. There will be people, as we saw, who, who flee to the mountains and cry out to the rocks to fall upon them because they dread the complete exposure and accounting of their every immoral, sinful thought, word, and deed. 
And if I think about it, I think I would want the same. If, if all of my thoughts, words, and deeds were to be put on display on this big screen right now in front of all of you, I would want the rocks to fall upon me and crush me. I would not want to be here. And that would be the fate of the, the unrepentant, the unforgiven, uh, the wicked, according to the Bible, who they have to make their own defense before the judge. Without a mediator, without a savior, without a priest representing them, they have to pay the debt of rejecting God and living apart from him. But in chapter 7, we saw how the saints, the church, they somehow stand confidently before the judge on Judgment Day. Why? Because they are represented by the Lamb of God who was slain for them, the one who consumed all the punishment that they justly deserve, so that they will be given white robes that symbolize their justification, their their cleansing from sin, and complete renewal. And so for those who trust in this Lamb, trust in their Savior, Christ, uh, they don't cry out in fear at the altar of the Lamb. They worship Him. They enjoy Him. Because at the altar of the Lamb is where they're saved. It's where they're forgiven. It's where they are secured. As one commentator put it, um, as the seals are unsealed, the saints are sealed. As the world is being unraveled by the Lamb and His judgment, those who trust in the Lamb are secured. And and those are the saints. Now, everyone is, in a sense, uh, running after, chasing after some kind of security in life. This is a pretty universal human longing and endeavor. We all pursue security. Uh, we all, to, some, to varying degrees, we're, we're chasing after security because uh, we all know and we all feel, to varying degrees, um, the world we live in is unraveling. Uh, why do we pursue financial security? Because we know, inherently, we know uh, our finances, our economy is unraveling. It's unstable. Uh, why do we want physical security? Because our health and our environment, they're unraveling. They're insecure. Uh, we want political security because our, our government, our politicians are unraveling. They're not to be trusted with our whole lives. We want emotional security because our relationships are also out of our control. They often unravel before our eyes. We want uh, security in the midst of all the chaos we find ourselves in. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that, to know how that feels, to feel insecure. And what we see all around the world and in our lives is, is this unraveling on this micro level, everyday level, even when we don't see it on the macro level that John is describing in this, in this vision. But when you, when you look at the trees enough, you see the forest. Right? The, the, the biblical narrative is true. The whole world is actually unraveling, becoming undone because of sin. Right? The world isn't the way it is because na- it's just nature taking its course. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. People are not the way they're supposed to be. You and I are not the way 
we're supposed to be. What we're seeing on the everyday micro level is the cosmic macro effect, consequence of sin. The cosmic effect of sin upon our world, our neighbors, ourselves. So here's, here's what this makes us who live here. We're all, on the one hand, sufferers, sufferers of the sins of others, and also sufferers of our own sins and often the cause of other people's suffering as well. We are both sufferers and sinners here on this earth, all of us. We're sufferers and sinners. But this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ is so unique because the gospel, the good news, also offers us a third identity. We're not just sufferers and sinners. In Christ, in the Lamb of God, we can also be saints. What are saints? What are the, who are the saints uh, that we have been seeing in the book of Revelation so far? They are, on the one hand, sinners who have found an answer to their sins, and it's Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. So they're forgiven by God, and they're set free from the dominance of sin. They can reverse the effect of sin on their lives because saints are people who have been saved by grace. On the other hand, saints are also sufferers, sufferers who have found an answer to their suffering because they've been redeemed by God and they're not being transformed by Him. They're transformed in their understanding, their perspective, and even their use of their suffering. The the gospel empowers them to now even use their suffering to minister to others the way God wants them to. Saints are people who now have a newfound purpose as sufferers. And so even as we're here, finding ourselves in a world that's constantly unraveling on various micro-levels, and we're tossed back and forth between sufferer and sinner, sufferer and sinner. The gospel gives us the additional reassurance that we are also saints. And our hope, our worth, our happiness, they're still secure in our identity as saints. Some of us here, like me, you can be labeled as uh, Korean hyphen American and I might add another hyphen, Christian. We have these hyphenated identity markers. I think we as Christians, we can also be identified this way. Sufferers, hyphen, sinners, hyphen, saints. That's what we all are. And what I want you to think about for a moment is how this ultimate identity as saints, even as you are suffering and sinning, your ultimate identity as saints, how that anchors you. When your accuser comes whispering in your ear and tells you all you are is a sinner, you can say to the the accuser, to your enemy, you're only half right. You're right, I'm a sinner, but I'm a justified sinner. You're right, I have absolutely no righteousness in and of myself, but I'm covered in Christ's righteousness. That's a saint. And when the accuser 
whispers in your ear, you're just a victim, a lost victim who will never recover from the loss that you've suffered. You can also say to the enemy, you're half right again. I may not recover what I've lost, but I am not lost. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm still being made new by the power of the Lamb. He is so strong in my weakness, and he, he will, he has redeemed my story. That's a saint. There's a lot of practical gospel power in knowing that you're not merely a sufferer or a sinner, but you're a sufferer, sinner, saint. And I think that's what Revelation has been revealing to us, the saints, who are receiving this letter then and now. And what's helpful about our passage today is it gives us such a vivid picture that can help us keep this gospel identity and this perspective in mind. So as often as we think back on this picture, we regain uh, this vision of who we are. We're saints. Uh, it's, it's, like, it's like when life gets rather suffocating, uh, you come up for fresh gospel air and you breathe in this, your true identity as saints. That's what, that's what this vision, this picture is, is here for. Uh, there's a scene in the movie called Collateral uh, with Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise. It's a pretty intense, dark um, action thriller. But it makes this particular scene all the more effective because it's really dark and, and intense. I'm not recommending the movie unless you're really into action thrillers. But there's a really um, a meaningful scene where Max, who's played by Jamie Foxx, who's a cab driver, He's taking Annie, who's a lawyer, to her work. And she seems very stressed out, super stressed out about something. She's very doubtful, very fearful about something that might happen. So Max, uh, noticing that about her, he, he flips open his visor that's right above him and shows her this postcard of a picture of a tropical island that's affixed on the, the visor. And he calls it his private oasis. It's what he looks at in order to escape the, the pressures of the day, the, the very difficult customers he deals with, the, the terrible L.A. traffic, etc. And Max says to Annie, who's having a really, really rough day, I think you need this. And he, he takes the picture and gives it to her, gives her the postcard, which she found to be such a sweet thing and she appreciated so much she was very thankful and she then she doesn't know what to do she gives her gives gives her business card to him and 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 they keep in touch and there's a potential romance they're about to blossom but i share that with you because i think revelation the, book, the whole book of revelation in a sense is a series of postcards images visions from god and and god's way of sort of saying to us i think you need this Look at these images to help you out, lift you up from the, the pressures and burdens of your micro-level troubles, day-to-day -day life. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I believe this vision is also his invitation to come to him, inviting us to look and see where our true oasis is. So let's see what this vision is showing us, and let's learn its meaning, 
And so we can turn to it as often as we need to, open up Revelation 8, look at this picture again, and find God's reassurance for us here. First, notice the the silence in heaven. Verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. (laughs) What does this mean? Uh, For one... What this means is there's, an now, there's now an abrupt stop, like a pause button on all of the activities and noises that we've been hearing and seeing so far. And there's been a lot, right? If you've been following our series, uh, from the beginning of this vision, we've seen the, the four living creatures who do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, chapter 4, verse 8. And there are 24 elders who constantly say, God is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, chapter 4, verse 11. When the Lamb receives a scroll, there's songs of praise coming forth from innumerable saints. That's chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, there were laments as well of the martyrs crying out for their final vindication, crying for God's justice to be done. And then in chapter 7, we saw a preview of their eternal song of salvation, singing day and night about how God has saved his people. And then now, at the beginning of the seventh seal in chapter 8, what do we have? After all the, the series of noises and activities, silence, complete stop to everything. There's a stillness for half an hour. Why? What does this signify? And there are several good interpretations of this. Um, I think one of the uh, better interpretations is to uh, think contextually about this first and, and, and see what we find in the, in the other parts of the Bible where we see silence and, and what does silence signify there. We can look at passages like Zechariah 2.13 where it says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he is aroused from his holy habitation. Or Habakkuk 2.20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Or the book of Job, which is uh, interestingly the book that has uh, the most frequent uh, usage of the word silence. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. So what we find common about these passages, about being silent or being silenced, is that silence is creation's basic and proper posture before God's authoritative presence. When God, the all-seeing one, the absolute truth, the judge of the world, is here and he's about to speak, we don't don't give him a shout of praise. We We don't cheer We lay our hands on our mouths. We're afraid of being heard. I think if we were to more accurately communicate what the Bible is actually saying through Zechariah, Habakkuk, and Job, and I'll do my best to say it without saying it sounding emotional, this is saying, hey, creation, shut up. God is speaking. And, And... there's no way to not sound mean as I say that, but I'm, I think that's what the scriptures are saying to us. When, when God is here and he's about to speak, close your mouth. 
It's like being in a courtroom. I don't know if you've been in a courtroom before. I have a couple of times, and you know immediately, right? This is not a place where I should be chatty. This is not a place where I should be on my phone, where ringtones should go off. This is where the only proper sound is is silence. In the courtroom, there's only one person who should speak freely, and that is the judge. The judge's words are what carry all the weight and all the significance. And if you're there for sentencing, that's a terrifying silence, isn't it? Similarly, silence is the proper expectant posture with which creation greets God's authoritative presence. Like Job, we should lay our hands on our mouths because Yahweh, God, great I am, is here and he's speaking. By the way, um, there's a reason why, you know, when we have seminars at church or Sunday school classes at church, we can have all kinds of dialogues back and forth. We can have Q&As and table discussions and things like that, and that's great. I love that. There's a reason why we don't do that when we hear the preaching of God's word. Um, We, especially in the the Reformed tradition, we believe firmly. When we hear the word of God preached, we think it's biblical to think. When the word of God is being properly preached, we're hearing nothing less than the very voice of God. We believe that. And that's one of the reasons why during preaching, at least, it's not a dialogue. It's a time of quiet listening, attentive listening to the Word of God. And and when I'm in the audience, I'm listening to whoever is preaching. It's not because I'm a preacher, I get to talk back to the the preacher and have a dialogue. I'm also silenced before the Word of God that's being proclaimed. Okay, there's that. This, This silence before this very reverent, awesome, and perhaps awful, for those who are awaiting sentencing, presence of God. That's, that's one meaning of the silence. Okay, there's that. But at the same time, if you look at other parts of the Bible, silence is also simultaneously a way for God's people to enjoy his presence and rest in his care. Um, silence is a form of resting in God's care. Psalm 131 is, is a good example of this. It's only three verses, but it captures this really well. It goes like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So here the psalmist is tapping into a peace and a calm, and a hope in his soul that all of his great, marvelous achievements could never bring him. He's found it all in the Lord, and he, he taps into that how? By silencing his soul. Silencing the voice that says, you need to be occupied with greater things and more marvelous things than what God has in store for you. You need to boost your ego more than your current state of ego. You need to set your eyes on higher goals than what God is asking you to settle for. He's silencing all that. And like a child who lies still in his mother's arms without ambitions, without 
big plans and dreams. He rests in the arms of God in silence. So then when you, when you think about silence in, in, in the scriptures, then you have this twofold meaning. It's this reverent silence in the presence of God and this comforting silence in the arms of God. And so when we look at Revelation 8, which, which silence is this referring to? Is it more so the, the silence before the impending judgment of God or the silence that comes with the saints' enjoyment of God? I think the answer is both. It's both. This silence in heaven, as the seventh seal is about, or it is opened, to the wicked, is, this is a terrifying silence. This is the silence right before the judge's pronouncement. This is, this is where you know the sentencing is about to begin. And that's a terrifying silence for the wicked. But this silence in heaven is to the saints... The sound of rest, the sound of sleep, the sound of the loving father who is holding his child with love and compassion, the sound of there's nothing more for me to do. My father will take care of it all. There's, that's the twofold meaning of silence, I believe, in Revelation chapter 8. So as you look at this, as you as you take in this vision of silence, the silence in heaven, if you were to sit literally in silence with this, maybe, maybe for half an hour, sometime today, as you consider this vision and, and, and all the previous seals, what do you think you would end up with? Dread or delight? Delight would mean you have the assurance of a saint. You look at the lamb as your only hope, your true Lord and Savior, the lamb who was slain for you. You would delight in him. Dread would mean you have some repenting to do. Dread would mean you have, you're not reconciled with the lamb and, and, and you're afraid of the accounting that will come for you. Like, like how the law of gravity pulls you down, this moral law of God will hold you to account. Maybe you will be completely indifferent. Maybe you will simply say, you know, I don't really care either way. I think that would mean uh, either you don't believe this at all or you have some soul searching to do to figure out what you actually do believe. Uh, but, you know, what's beneficial is that silence gives us all this, figuring out where, are, where do we stand with this. Uh, so try what Psalm 4 says, uh, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Be still and, and see if you know he really is God and whether he is your God. Discern it uh, as you sit in silence with this picture, with this vision, with this picture of the lamb opening the seventh seal. Okay, but why half an hour? What does that mean? Why does it say in verse 1 that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour? Does this mean that um, there's this clock in heaven and this timer goes off at the half hour mark? Right? Uh, does this mean that heaven is equally temporal? 
You know, I, uh, is there like a heavenly version of the sun and the moon and the stars that give measurement of time? No, right? It's likely a non-literal symbolic number because the hour, the hour is also a symbolic time reference in, in the book of Revelation. It appears a lot. It appears about nine times. And they're all pointing to the final judgment, the day of the final judgment, and that's the hour. And it does not mean, therefore, that the final judgment will last for 60 minutes. Uh, it's a symbolic hour. It's the day of final judgment. And therefore, half an hour is likely also a symbolic reference to the imminence, the nearness of the hour. And I think that interpretation is, is consistent with the, the context of Revelation when you consider the judgment passages that were right before this and, and will come right after this. This half hour seems to be indicating that the hour is very near. In a sense, I think one could even argue that the time we're living in right now is the half hour. Now is the time to ponder these things before the hour is here. Now is the time to consider where do I stand with the judge who will right every wrong? Now is the time to be silent and ponder these things before the noise comes, before all the activities resume. Now is the time to ponder these things. And hopefully as saints, we would find ourselves uh, re-entering the joy, the comfort of knowing we've been forgiven, we've been justified and adopted by the Lamb who loved us and gave himself up for us. So, so that this picture, is, it will be our spiritual visor opening and, and seeing this is, this is an oasis that gives us rest, gives us comfort. You know what? I think uh, it's as we do this more and more for ourselves, the more we're able to sit in silence with God this way, I think we'll also learn um, how to do this with others. Because that's such a vital tool in, in helping people uh, who are in need. Um, what do you think, if there was a, a brother or sister uh, near you or a family member or a friend near you who's suffering, what do you think that brother or sister or neighbor in need is most in need of? Uh, Mike Emlett, who's a Christian counselor, he said, sometimes sitting in silence with a sufferer is exactly what is needed. And he says, as you listen to someone's story and are trying to fully understand it, be careful not to move away from the pain too quickly. Because in many places, Scripture lingers in lament. So give people a safe environment to give voice to their suffering and struggle to you and to the Lord. Meaning, be with them, but be silent. Be the opposite of Job's friends, who were with Job but had a lot to say. <laughs> And if you're wondering why this kind of comforting presence might be so rare, I think, I think one answer is because this is not from around here. <laughs> this, is, this is a divine gift. This gift of silence, this, this ability to linger and sit with lament, and this kind of you will not scare me away with your problems kind of stillness 
is God's stillness. It's God's power to be with us in our suffering. It's the cross. And I think it's important we, we're able to enjoy that, soak that in for ourselves plentifully <laughs> so we can offer that to others who are in need as well, even as they share with, with you things that are very uh, raw and unprocessed. Uh, rather than um, jumping too quickly to here, here are the steps to resolving this because I'm uncomfortable sitting with, on this, Try being with them in silence, knowing God is also with you in that moment. His Spirit speaks plenty uh, before you do. That's the, the importance of silence in heaven and on earth. All right, briefly, uh, here's the second part of the vision for the, of the seventh seal that we're being shown. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. Another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Okay, so they're here. The saints are here praying, and it's being offered up with the incense and the smoke from the incense, right? Isn't that interesting? Twice it says this in verse 3 and 4. The prayers were offered with the smoke of incense. This is not just any prayer, is it? It's a prayer that's offered with the incense. What kind of prayer is this? And it's foreign to us, but this is why revelation cannot be understood just with this um, 21st century American mind as our only template. We have to look at all of Scripture, and it would have been familiar to the early church as they recall Old Testament passages where prayers and incense often went together, often appear together, like Psalm 14, where he says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Uh, In the Old Testament, incense was always associated with sacrifice. So the fact that incense is offered along with the prayers of the saints is very significant. Um, this, This isn't just any prayer, but it's a prayer of those whose lives are also being offered as a sacrifice to God. Now, why would anyone need to sacrifice themselves as an offering to God? It is not to atone for their sins. It's not to give up their lives on the cross like Jesus did because Jesus did that. The lamb was slain. So what is this offering? What is this sacrifice of the saints? This is their worship of the one who loved them and gave himself up for them. This is their response saying, Lord, I now love you and I give myself up for you. You love me at the the macro level, if you will, and I'll love you in the micro way. Their life's agenda, now the saint's agenda, is now to imitate the one who loved them and gave himself up for them by loving him and giving themselves up for him. It's what Paul says in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is the the proper response the saints ought to make out of their gratitude and thanksgiving. Now, why is this combined with prayers? Why is this incense of the saints' sacrifice combined with their prayers? Why is that being emphasized twice? And I think it's pretty consistent and coherent if you think about that the only way we can truly pray the way the Lord taught us to pray, the right way to pray, which is your kingdom come, 
your will be done. The only way we can really pray that is if we understand sacrifice. That this life I live is not the one where I fight to keep my life, but the one where I give it up for God. Uh, you, you cannot live this way without praying this way. You cannot pray this way without living this way. The, mo- the two must go together, hand in hand. This life is not the one where I live to gain. Where I, it's where I live to lose. It's, it's where I become last. This is where I not accrue and save up things. This is where I expend myself the way Jesus did. That's God's will being done in your life and his kingdom coming here on earth, isn't it? And you can't pray that without living that way. You can't live that way without praying that way. That's one way of understanding the, the, the incense of their sacrifice and their prayers going hand in hand, why they must go together. The, the other meaning that could be very closely related to this image is that God will use the prayers of the saints as his instruments of judgment on the last day as well. And this is where verse 5 comes in. Um, Every prayer for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, every God-exalting prayer seems like it's being stored up. And then, (laughs) combined with the fire of God in verse 5, then hurled down upon the earth to, to judge the wicked and the unrepentant. That's a pretty astonishing image all of our prayers god exalting prayers god he takes he he fills it with his fire he throws it down on the earth and it appears as peals of thunder rumblings flashes of lightning and earthquake all the all the signs of his his judgment i think thomas torrance the theologian who commented on this verse i think he put it best he wrote what are than the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer in verse 5. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God. That means that the more potent, more powerful than, than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. That's how powerful the prayers of the saints are. None of it goes to waste. Uh, None of these prayers are prayed in vain. They're all stored up and, and set ablaze by the fire of God. They will be cast upon the earth. Why? To make his kingdom come down on the earth to realize and actualize his new heaven, new earth. He will use our prayers, your prayers, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, to recreate the world. So the application here is, realize how powerful your God-exalting prayers are and continue to pray that your kingdom come, your will be done. And as you do, remember none of that is going to waste. It will be answered, and it will be answered in the here and now as God begins to make his kingdom more visible and his will more prominent through your life gradually for the rest of your life. Until one day, it will be total 
and complete for the rest of eternity. As we pray, we rehearse this reality. We anticipate this reality. We should not be surprised when the day of judgment comes because you've been praying for it every week. Your kingdom come and your will be done. So here's what we saw in this vision, in this picture. God's God's invitation to silence, heavenly silence, finding our comfort in that silence, in the Lamb of God. And our prayers that ought to rise with, with our sacrificial lives in the here and now. Oh, begin to offer this to Him. Your prayers and your incense, your sacrificial way of living. This vision, therefore, in this way, cause us, uh, to put it simply, to be a faithful sufferer, sinner, saint in the here and now during this half hour until we become nothing but a saint at the hour, finally and ultimately and eternally. Remember that as you remember this vision. Um, as you look back on it in silence and prayerfulness, uh, most of all remember who you are. Not just a sufferer, not just a sinner. Uh, in Christ, in the Lamb of God, a sufferer, sinner, saint for now, and ultimately and eternally a saint. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture. Thank you for this vision that we so desperately uh, needed in order to see beyond what we see only with our physical eyes, to see beyond our, our selfish ambitions and our, our agenda to build our, our little kingdoms here on earth and to please ourselves and to let our own wills to be done. Uh, all the things that forget, uh, make us forget, we are your saints. All the things that cause us to only live as sufferers and sinners. Lord, uh, silence these voices. Help us to uh, enjoy your gift of heavenly silence where we realize we are ultimately your saints. Uh, in prayerfulness and in obedience, Lord, help us to live in a way that becomes the followers of Christ. Not only saying with our lips, your kingdom come, your will be done, but, but living that with our hands, our feet, our thoughts, our words indeed. Lord, truly, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done in our lives. And so, Lord, make us, therefore, uh, your saints, your saints now, and your saints forever. We ask all of this in the gracious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.